being here. I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 this morning. I would love for you to open up, and uh, we're going to begin our time together by reading the first 13 verses. We'll end up covering the whole chapter, but I want to set the, uh, set the table with the story that uh, God gives us here in Joshua 3, chapter 3, verse number 1 through 13. We took a week off from our Joshua study. If you weren't with us a few weeks ago, we began a study called Victory, all about how God was leading his people into, uh, uh, into the promised land and giving them victory uh, and teaching them what it really meant to find victory and find their life in him. And uh, we've had a, a blessing of a time so far. I think today might be the best one yet. So Joshua 3, verse number 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come and hear, hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So nobody left that will stand in their way. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, as soon as their feet shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand up as a heap. One of, our, one of the most familiar, one of the most spectacular stories in the Bible. Today, I want to see if we can kind of walk in their shoes. And of course, they began right up against the Jordan, wondering how on earth were they going to cross it? Maybe you're up against something today wondering how in the world will you find your way across it? Maybe God will give you some help today. But before we get there, have you ever heard a proposition or you've been made an offer that didn't require any contemplation whatsoever as soon as you heard it you were on board as soon as you were it was even proposed to you you were like where do I sign when can I act when can I move when can I get you know be a part of that maybe it was a job offer maybe it was an invitation maybe it was a request of some kind but as soon as you heard it 
The words coming out of the mouth of the other person across from you or on the line or across the you know, email or text, however it came to you. As soon as you received the offer or the opportunity, you reacted as quickly as you could. No doubt the reason you were so swift to move is because you were waiting to hear that, weren't you? You were anticipating it. You were hoping for it. You were ready to hear that for a long time, most likely. And if I may dig a little deeper, more than just you wanted to hear a particular offer or invitation, maybe you wanted to hear it from a particular person. And when you heard it from that particular person, the offer was great, the invitation was great, but the fact that they were the one giving it to you, the fact they were the one asking you or proposing it to you, that was even better. That was actually what you were looking for more than anything. That person, whether they represented a personal want, a professional want, was really as important as what was offered to you. So when the right request came at the right time from the right person's mouth, all was right in your world and you began to act right away. And the reason you were so quick to move is because the opportunity, the invitation, the offering that, that, that was put before you It was something that you longed for and what was behind it was something that you had longed for, something that really all of us need at our core. That all of us are after some kind, a lot of kind of affirmation and validation. Every single person, something that every person longs for at their core needs, we all long for and need affirmation and validation. And most likely when we're waiting for something to come our way, it's what's behind that. It's it's the affirmation it brings, the validation it brings. I think one of the greatest underestimations in life is how desperately we all want to belong to something. I think our generation misses this because we get so lost in in the illusion of individualism, the illusion of independence. Yeah, even the most rugged individualist, even the most independent person wants to belong or to put it another way, they want to feel needed. They want to feel significant. They want to know that they matter. Almost everything we do is governed by a set of convictions. All of those convictions bow at some kind of altar, somebody's altar, somebody's standards. If we do things because of a set of family traditions, religious beliefs, patriotic or national ideas, we do what we do because we want to meet expectations that we've ascribed to, whether they're our own or whether we've adopted them which ultimately all falls under this banner of belonging. Whether it's things that we do to get approval or things we do to maintain approval, all of us know how good it feels to be approved, appreciated, accepted, selected, and chosen. There's no one that cannot relate to this sensation that comes from feeling like you belong to somebody or something. It's that pride from seeing your family enjoy what you put on the table. It's that relief from being picked to be part of something at school. It's the sense of accomplishment that comes from being recognized at work. It's the comfort and security knowing that what's going on around you meets with the way that you think things should be done. Again, some people, and I've been one of those people, some people will say, oh, I don't care about that. I'm okay, I'm just in my own bubble. I don't need anybody else's approval or validation. But yet, if we aren't recognized, And if we feel like we don't belong, if we see that the way we think is right suddenly isn't the way most people or enough people see the world, 
we suddenly feel insecure. And even those that put on the greatest affronts know what this feeling is like. The very people that say no one or nothing beyond them affects them will suddenly sound the alarm of concern. And we all have different ways of displaying our insecurities. One of them is how we deny that we display our insecurities. We love to be independent and individualistic until we feel like we're not receiving enough validation or affirmation. And then we either want others to cooperate with us, associate with us, acknowledge us, which reveals we aren't so independent. After all, we all want, really, we all need affirmation and validation. We all want to belong to something. We all desire a certain measure of approval. We all desire a certain feeling and sense of accomplishment. Whether we want it from our parents, our grandparents, our kids, our grandkids, or from classmates, coworkers, or neighbors and citizens, I think all of this stems from this part of us that just wants to feel like we're a part of something, like we're an essential part of something extraordinary. We want to feel essential and we want to make sure that what's around us measures up to that extraordinary potential we think it has. Now, there are a lot of moving parts in this world that make it impossibly hard to find this in everything at the same time. Things might be going right in your family, but then things don't go right at work. Things go right in your country, but then things go bad at home. If we try to find approval and validation in all the moving parts of this world, we'll truly never find it. And maybe that explains why we're so on edge and so unsettled all the time. And it may explain why we live from moment to moment, always hoping we get that shot into our brain that says you're doing good, you're making it. I don't know when we realize this need, but we're all born with it. It just takes some of us a little longer to realize it and to confess it. I think most of us realize that we're broken in this way the first time we're left out of something, maybe at home, at school, when everybody's picking people to be on their team and you're the one that gets picked last or maybe not at all. Some people never realize it. Uh, They never realize how reliant they are on this world's affirmation and validation, maybe because things always seem to go their way. But I think our world is tribal enough that we all know, I think you all know what it feels like to be left out, to be overlooked. And it doesn't feel good, does it? Some try to brute force their way to attention or action, but that just proves the point, I think. I think you'll agree. Now, we're studying the book of Joshua, which centers around the person Joshua, who is the last of a generation. He had come up under Moses, who famously led the nation out of bondage. Within just 18 months, they were on the threshold of the promised land that they had been told, their ancestors had been told, I'm going to give you this land. God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Moses, 400 years later, I'm going to bring you to this promised land. I'm going to remove the enemies that that have been there occupying it. This is all part of my plan. Just I'm going to lead you from this place to that place. And of course, across 18 months, God did miracle after miracle and brought the people of Israel from Egypt to the land of Canaan. But then that 18 months turned into 40 years because when they set out to take the possession of the land, they were scared away by giants. They felt like grasshoppers in the sight of those giants and they determined that they could not 
take the land after all. No matter what God had said and what God had done, they just couldn't do it. And this led the people into a dizzying dive, decades of infighting and wandering in circles. At first, they tried to come up with a backup plan, a battle plan maybe. Then they tried to find alternative routes. And then they just resolved to never actually leaving the wilderness. And they walked in circles for 40 years. And would you believe, would you believe that God actually used this generation to send a message to all generations to teach us something about ourselves and perhaps to put a mirror in front of ourselves. God used that generation, a generation of almost, a generation who took a sure-fired victory and fumbled the ball in spectacular ways, leading to embarrassing losses. God used them to save us. Now, he gave them plenty of chances to not suffer from their own mistakes. He bailed them out again and again and again. But none of them but Joshua and his friend Caleb outlasted that generation. Even Moses died in the desert. And those two were tagged to lead the next generation to take what, their, what theirs had left on the table. Joshua and Caleb were picked to be the leaders to bring a new generation up to do what theirs couldn't do. All of this centered around... All of this centers around a desire within all of us for approval and accomplishment. This want for validation and affirmation and how we never will find it in this world in and of ourselves. Even if the picture looks perfect, something will come into view and cause it to blur. Joshua had watched a generation led by their master, led by the master of insecurity, Moses, who had every opportunity to trust God, rest in the Lord, continually turn to this world and its devices for what God was offering them in and of himself. But when God gave him the invitation to not just lead the nation, but to find genuine validation and true approval, accomplishments like none other. When God gave Joshua that invitation, he did not have to ask twice. Joshua was all in. And all these years later, Joshua, especially chapter three, offers us the same invitation of a lifetime where God says, I want you to trust me. It's gonna require that we confront some uncomfortable things. But if we look past the doubt, and we resist the urge to argue with God because we do these things constantly, don't we? God says, trust me, and we doubt, and we want to argue with him. And if we will look past the doubt and resist the urge to say, but, or maybe this will work, or I don't know about that. If we will look past the doubt and resist the urge to argue, we will not only find the approval that we're looking for, we will find the sense of accomplishment that we long for. The short of it is summarized in Joshua chapter three, verse number five, where Joshua, of course, channeling the Lord's word, Joshua says to the people, if we're gonna do this, we're finally here, y'all. It's been 40 long years. You watched your parents and your aunts and your uncles and your older siblings all die in the wilderness because they refused to do this one thing. 
Guys, this is our chance. This is our opportunity of a lifetime. I know where my faith is. I know what I've decided, but will you join me? He says, sanctify or consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And he's saying it in a plural way, wonders among us. Now, my goal is that this verse kind of linger in the air today. Just entice us, just allure us and, and invite us. My goal is not to explain away this verse, is not to break it down and give us some sort of scientific, you know, step-by-step plan to see how we can get it the way they got it. My goal is that we might marvel at what might be, what could be, and what can be realized in our lives if we will follow God as this generation did. This this is God's invitation over you, over your life, today, tomorrow, and forever. And this chapter is a pathway that you can take It can revolutionize your life. This chapter features in spotlights an invitation given to a whole generation to walk away from the attempts to find validation, affirmation from each other, from your families, from your careers, from your hobbies, from your worldviews, from your politics, to walk away from the way you've been doing it and trust God's way. Now, in this chapter, down in verse 11 and 13, God, who gives this invitation, describes himself with a never-before-used title. You can find it in verse number 11 and verse number 13. God refers to himself as the Lord of all the earth. You know what that title in and of itself is? This title is an invitation to lift our eyes above, away from, and off of this earth and set them on God and fix our eyes on God. If we want to move forward into the promised land, into the life that God has promised us, we have got to see that above this earth, beyond this earth, away from this earth, there is a God who rules over all and is above all. And he's inviting us to fix our eyes on him, to consecrate our eyes on him, to focus on him, not with just eye service, but to fix our attention on him and order our steps on him because by him because we believe he has our future solely in his hands and unless we go his way there is no forward now we got to believe that that is the only option for us otherwise we'll never take it we'll go some alternative route that's why the previous generation said you know what maybe we don't need to go That's kind of scary, kind of intimidating, kind of complicated, kind of costly. Maybe we should just hang out out here a while. This is an invitation to lift your eyes above the earth to the Lord of and over all the earth. And in a sense, invite him or allow the Lord of all the earth to be the Lord over our little peace of the earth. You see that? 
Remember back when God said, Joshua, the, the ground, every step that you take is holy, is a place that I want to do a great work. The greatest work that God wants to do in your life is in the little piece of earth that you call your own, that you have been given to take every step and move every day. God is calling us to set our eyes on him and thereby invite him and allow him, the Lord of all the earth, to be the Lord over our little patch, our little square, our little piece of the earth. Now, let me be clear. God is the Lord over all the earth, whether we acknowledge it or not. But this is an invitation to see him exercise his power and might over our little peace. You see, it's not that God needs our permission, but God is a merciful God. He is a patient God. He's not forceful. He wants you to want it. He wants you to be willing. He does not want to force himself anywhere on anybody. That's not in his nature. We can spend our time seeking validation, affirmation in all the ways of the earth with its temptations and tricks, seeking to fill the void in our hearts. Or we can set aside those temporary fixes, admit that there is only one solution and that there is only one true means of approval. And this, this is where it's so hard for us to let go of this world We cling to the affirmation and validation we find from people and places. We become combative and temperamental at the thought of not having it or not getting it. We show displeasure towards people when we don't get it. Our countenance falls when we don't receive it or experience. We become childish when we don't get it from people, don't we? Which is what and who we are. We are little children in need of something that only our heavenly father can give. We think that we, can, we can't live without getting, finding, leaning on the validation and affirmation this world offers us. But truth be told, we don't know what living is at all until we begin totally and fully setting our attention on the Lord fixing our heart on him, to trust him, obey him, and honor him. You you see, when we give our attention over to this earth, we all, we order our steps by the earth, we bow to the altar of family, work, culture, politics, wherever we depend on for our sense of worth, we will always stop short of reaching the heights God wants us to, where where he will be glorified, where we will actually grow as a person he's made us to be. We will always fall short of entering the promised land, reaching and realizing the promised life. And and, and here's the thing, most professing believers are okay with this because we find enough and we find enough day by day, week by week, at home, at work, at play. We find enough to keep us going. What a shame it is that we have to spend this life feeling as if our sense of worth, purpose, and peace is teetering on the edge of collapse, going from high to high. And and the thing to realize is that the things that make you feel good, validated, and affirmed one time, they might not measure up the next time. There's no guarantee. Our flesh is picky. Our minds are finicky. This earth is moody. And not to insult you, you are too. That's why sometimes seeing a room full of your loved ones does the trick and sometimes it doesn't. Sitting across from your spouse at a table where everything should be right sometimes does the trick and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes even with the right set of circumstances, a good day at work, ideal scenarios, home and abroad, sometimes you still feel like something's not right, something's not enough. 
from day to day, year to year, season to season. There's no guarantees as long as you focus on this earth and are tied down by the things that are stuck to it. For a generation, the people of Israel had lived like this, and one by one, they all died. Some far from the land, some right up next to it, but the long story is all of them, close or not, died outside of the promised land. But God is inviting this next generation to not only make it into it, but make the most of it. Joshua 3 is not just the grand entrance as if it's the finish line. Not, the goal wasn't just to cross it and get there. The goal was that this was just the beginning of their life that God always promised them. And God's inviting them to begin life in the proper and right spirit. And the heart of that invitation and the heart of his desire for every one of us is Joshua 3.5. As we enter the promised land, that we might thrive, that we might totally set our hearts on the Lord and find ourselves in him. We might sanctify ourselves as in totally surrender our lives to God and see that in him and only in him are we going to find what we need. The exchange, if we do that, well, it's incredible that we, that he or that we might see God do wonders among us, see him made known to us, for us, and through us. That is the opportunity in front of us. Sanctify yourselves, and tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. But this is going to be done on God's terms, and it always will be. When Israel arrived at this point with the promised land, right in front of them, they were separated by the Jordan River. Now, it might not be obvious to us, but the difficulty of the task at hand was very apparent to them. It's not stated explicitly in the text until later in the chapter, but the buildup here is meant to communicate that. God brings them to lodge here at the crossing, and they rise up early, in the morning, and then he just lets them sit in silence and think about it for three days. Isn't that what the text says? They come there and then after three days, so what happened in those three days? They just sit there and wait on their next move. They don't know what to do. God brought them to a river that was rushing and roaring. They can't imagine how they're going to get across it. And nobody says a word for three days. And Joshua is nowhere to be seen. They, people are starting to think this is like it was with Moses in the pre-generation before us. They start having you know, flashbacks to what their parents lived through, what the grandparents lived through. He had built Joshua up back in chapter 1 and 2. He instructs them to set up camp here. And then it's just silence for three days. Was there a reason for that? Absolutely. In Hebrew tradition, three days was the length of time in which you held on to hope. It was sort of a culture's duration of morale and motivation. If you could just, if, if three days, in that three-day period, maybe something will happen that will make things look different or sound different or be better. The Hebrew people often relented burying their own loved ones for up to three days because they believed there was some chance the spirit might come back within that three-day period of time. But more to the point. This three-day window of silence was meant to allow the impossibility of the moment to sink in. I think, well, that's really motivating. It's impossible. 
I told you this is going to require we confront some uncomfortable things. And we must not doubt and we must resist the urge to argue. They remained there by this river for three days without any further explanation, any further instruction, which I can imagine brought back, again, memories of Moses, Aaron, and the arguing and the murmuring that went on before. But Joshua has ice in his veins. They just wait. And I think Joshua knew that this was a necessary delay. Now, nobody here is praying for God to delay things in your life. I understand it. But maybe he has. And maybe you're in a season right now where there's a big pause button over you. As a country, regardless of who you blame and who you point the finger to, we went through a pause period, right? And maybe in some ways we still are in it. And could it be that it's not anybody or anything's fault, but it's God who hits pause sometimes? to test us and build us and refine and deepen our faith. That's what happened here. Three days where he does not say a word. And Joshua knew this was a necessary delay. He knew that this was meant so that they could become, it would become clear the water wasn't going anywhere. This river was not going to part like the one before it. They were going to have to trust God with his mission. The purpose of these three days was to develop an intense, exclusive dependence on God for this situation and everyone that would happen after it. In the Bible, three days is often a a symbol of a complete rebirth, a revised outlook, a divine perspective. And that's what this is setting up because their obstacle was the Jordan River. It was no mere stream or creek. It was a 10 to 12 feet deep rushing body of water that if you were foolish enough to wade into, you would be swept downstream in a second. But of all the impossible and intimidating elements were meant to grow their faith before they met this obstacle. Remember, they heard God's word to them that this is time, arise, now go, I'm gonna lead you into the land. So the path forward was to rely on established promises. The initial revelation from God in verse three is that, hey, the priests are gonna pick up the ark and they're gonna start walking and you're gonna follow them. Joshua relates to the people, we're not waiting for the water to dry up. The water is waiting on us to step in. We're not waiting on the water. Now, can you imagine what people thought of Joshua? Well, this guy's no Moses. I mean, Moses had a stick. He could just wave it in the air and water would part. Snakes would fall over, right? Leprosy would be healed. Moses could do miracles. Oh, wow. Nobody, we don't have Moses anymore. And Joshua's frank with him. Listen, Moses is dead. Remember that chapter one? Moses is gone. I'm what you got, like me or not. Hey, I'm the guy, but I'm not waving a wand. This isn't how it's going to work. Might happen someday, but it's not happening today. There's not going to be a parting water here. The water is waiting on us to step into it. That's right. This would not be Red Sea part two. This would be something different. Something difficult. God was going to ask them to literally step into the water as it was rushing and roaring and trust him with the rest. Have a nice day, y'all. I mean, how many of us would say, well, that sounds like a miracle waiting to happen, especially with the Red Sea miracle in your mind, right? Because why can't God do that again? Why can't that happen again? Couldn't it? Why, you know, shouldn't we expect that? 
to which God through Joshua issues the invitation. Guys, I know this is not what you thought was gonna happen. Focus on me, trust in me, consecrate yourselves on into me and I will do wonders among you. God is inviting them in. God is giving them everything they've ever wanted, but it would require faith in God's plan, even if God's plan was still a bit foggy. Old Scottish Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren said once, God often opens his hands one finger at a time. This is how God operates. This is how God works. Step into the water that looks as if it will drag you down. Trust me with the rest. At first we think, what is the sense behind this? Don't, don't you see, and, and maybe you don't, but this is what God is doing. As he's taking them into the land, he's breaking their sensitivity to and reliance on appearance. All their lives, they were based, they looked at what they saw. It was how they felt. It was the approval of this world. It was the validation from this world. And God says, I'm breaking your sensitivity to what you see and how you feel. I'm wiring your heart by faith in me. so that we and that they might learn to always trust him. For when they're tempted to turn to this world, that approval and accomplishment the world allures and tempts them with. And I know there's parts of us that wants to push back against this, but let me remind you, God has taken full responsibility of your life in the future in every step before you. He has already said, I'm taking you through. Will you trust me on how I'm gonna get you there? Will you? We must not forsake what we know because of what we don't know. In verse four, they're told not to get too close to the ark because God wanted them to keep their eyes on it. Not the water. Don't look at the water. Look at the ark, which represented the Lord. The water was not going to part until they all stepped into the water. You see, the ark was heavy. It would weigh the men down, but the rest of the people were not gonna be weighted down like that. So while the ark gave the priest a little bit of, you know, groundedness, the rest of the people would not have that. Isn't that how it works? God, of course God can get across the water. He's God, but what about me? I'm not, I'm just a little weak individual. I can't make it. That's what they were thinking. And again, verse five is a command, sanctify yourself, set apart for this, your life, completely cut your ties with this world. Tie yourself down to God's will. Think about it this way. Down in verse 8 and 13, the emphasis, the emphasis to the priests is that they're going to have to go stand in the middle of the rushing water. They're going to have to go put themselves in the middle of this river. In, this, in the wake of certain death, and they're going to wait on God to do wonders in their midst. Now, how many of us would have that kind of confidence in God? To go stand in the middle of the water that is almost certain to kill you. You know what this is a picture of? You know what sanctifying yourself to God is a picture of? Dying to self 
so that we might live to, by, and for God. See, they're in the middle of the river, and that river is the picture of death. The Jordan River is a picture of what it means to go, just, it's a suicide attempt. To go into the water would be foolish. And these priests are going to stand there while the water rushes around them, trusting that God is going to do a miracle. They were dying to themselves so that they might come alive to God. See, a lot of us, we have got to let go of what we lean on in this world. We've got to take our weight off of this world and begin to move into the waters. We may feel like we're losing something. We may feel like we're letting go of something we need, but it's in that moment of letting go. It's in, the, it's in that moment of wading into the thing you've been avoiding that God becomes real to you and becomes real in you and will be real through you. It's in that moment of facing what you cannot imagine going through and dealing with. It's taking your loved ones by the hand and moving forward into that water where God can become real. But it's going to require that you let go, that you take your weight off of this world. The Apostle Paul uses this kind of language when he describes his conversion to Jesus. He talks about how he thought he had found himself in this world. He says, I know it's tempting. You may have confidence in this world, but he says, listen, if anybody had a reason for confidence in their flesh, it, it was me. If anybody has, thinks there's a reason to think, man, I've made it or I've got it and maybe tomorrow I'll get it, it was me. Paul says, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the, of the people of Israel. I had the family, I, I had the heritage. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I had the religious clout. As to zeal, I was persecuting the enemy that I thought that the enemy of the church. I was righteous. Paul says, I made it. I was, the, I was the guy everyone was jealous of. But deep down, I knew that all that was fleeting, all that was teetering, all that was so fragile and temporary. And Paul says, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ, that the things I was leaning on were keeping me away from the Savior. They were keeping me away from where God wanted me to be. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen, you may not ever know what that worth is until you wade into the water of the unknown where God wants to take you. But listen to Paul, the surpassing worth, letting go of all of that, his heritage, his religion, his traditions, all of the things that he leaned on for approval and validation. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash, as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in and only in him. Church, this is the invitation to find yourself in and only in, be found in Christ. To turn to him for validation and affirmation, to rest in his approval, to let his accomplishments justify you and see his wonders be done through you and around you. But this will never happen if we are not trusting in God and taking him at his word. We come up to the moments like this in our life for this sole purpose that God might develop our faith, that we might sever our ties to this world, that we might lift our eyes up away from this earth. God chose the most impossible time and place because his deeper purpose was to develop his people's trust. He could have brought them when the water was not raging. He could have brought it during the dry season, but he brought them when it was the most tumultuous. 
And they are going to have to enter the land solely because of a miracle. And they must never forget this and take their every step in light of it. The same goes for us. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Isn't that verse incredible? It's not let him who walks in darkness pray for God to send the light. It's trust that even in the darkness, God is with you and you can rely on him for what a light cannot give you. Are we willing to trust God in the darkness or do we demand things be done our way and do we give up if things are not done our way? We feel our flesh exert its rule. Listen to this warning in the next verse. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, all who equip yourself with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. As in when we take the bait of this world to grab a torch, because we don't feel like God is pulling through for us. We've got to have that sense of approval, that validation, that affirmation, that foundation that we can feel and see and touch. We take the bait and the Bible says, and Isaiah says, the torment of knowing that we went a way that was not God, that did not lead to his glory, the torment of knowing that we made it right to the edge of the life that could have been and we settled for something less. Let's read how Joshua's generation chose to do. Verse 14, so it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests who, were, who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. That the waters which came down from the upstream stood still and rose up in a heap as far away at Adam, the city is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all of Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. And oh, by the way, God asked each tribal leader to pick up a boulder in the river while they were crossing. So the whole time the priests are standing there while the nation passes over, and then these 12 men are picking up these boulders that they would set up on the other side as a memorial to remind them of the day when the nation chose to obey God and leave the outcome in his hands. And that's what they did. Over in chapter four, at the end of the chapter, they would set up these stones as a memorial in verses 21 through 24. This is the purpose of that memorial they set up. 
when he spoke to the children of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. Verse 24, that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The stones reminded them that God could do wonders among them if only they trusted him. So what will it be for us, church? God is ever seeking to grow our faith and conform us to Jesus. He is seeking to leverage our lives for his glory, to further his story. Will we participate? Will we cross the Jordan rivers in our lives and stand before, that stand before us in the promised land to do so, to even get to the edge, let along the deep? We're gonna have to say goodbye to this element, the elements of this world that we rely on, to the things that we lean on for identity, approval, and accomplishment. And we're gonna have to resolve to do, as 2 Corinthians tells us, we walk by faith and not by sight, not by how we feel or what we see, but by who we believe in and trust in. Part of walking by faith does not mean to close your eyes, but it means to focus your eyes to realize that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. The children of Israel, a picture of the church that we've been involved and invited to be a part of the story of God. That, as verse 24 says, that the whole world may know the power, the might, and the glory of God. God's motivation is always to move along his story, to glorify his name, to make his saving power known, to make his kingdom known that is built, being built. This is God's invitation to us, that we might not waste our lives seeking affirmation and validation in small little passing people and things. He's inviting us to join him and find our life in him. That we might be released from the temperamental elements of this world and be freed and found in a God who never lets us down and who invites us to be a part of his incredible story. What wonders, what wonders might God do among us? If we would consecrate our hearts to him, if we would join together and move forward for his glory. Today, we, the people of God, must set our lives apart from this world and wholly trust in Jesus to rise up by faith, to move forward in faithfulness. Tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among us if we do this. Is he the Lord of our little piece of earth? The Lord of all the earth, does he rule your little patch of ground? Don't you know that that little patch can be claimed for and connected to his kingdom? Sounds like a much better use of something that belongs to him anyway, doesn't it? All that God would give us the faith to stand up, to step out, to break ties with what we've known and to find ourselves in the unknown, to find ourselves in the story of God's glory. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to just see, read this story and see ourselves in the story. And for many of us, we're right there on the edge. We're right there and a lot of us, if we're honest, we've just settled out, we've settled for life on this side. We've settled for a life of 
leaning on this world and hoping and grabbing and clinging to this world, we've, we've given up on something better. And we're driven by insecurities and fears. We're driven by the things of this world and we wonder if there's gonna be something there to hold us down tomorrow. But God, would we make the decision that Joshua's generation did to break ties, to set ourselves apart, to look to you and to fix our eyes on you, to give you the authority to rule over our little piece of the earth and to step out into the water, to find ourselves where you want us to be, to see the wonders of God work in and among and through our lives. God, somebody needs to step out today into the waters that they've been avoiding. They know they need to go, but they just don't know if they can let go of this world. Lord, would you give them the strength and faith to do that and show them that you will be there and you are there and you're waiting for them in that unknown. God, give us faith that we might make you known to a world that's waiting to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we sing together. If you have a need, the altar is open. Would you sing this song as a prayer with me today and ask God to give us faith.